everybody, and welcome back for another episode of Mangum Reads. We've been gone for a while, so to keep things entertaining, we have a guest series of attendants today. Joining me, as always, of course, is BJ. Say hi, BJ. Hi. And from our other series of podcasts, we have Lee and Levi. How y'all doing? What's up? Living the dream. Happy to have you all here. To continue the trend of novel events, Lee, you actually recommended our, show, our story for today. What do you have for us? I did. It's, um, it's a short story. Well, it's called a short story. It's really more of a novella from Stephen King. You bought me a book of Stephen King short stories called Skeleton Crew, and this was the first one in it. It's about 120-something pages. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so we're talking about The Mist from Stephen King, and then I believe the plan is to talk about the movie adaptation of the story, um, yeah. which came out in 2007. Which, if we want to make this a regular series, there have been quite a few Stephen King adaptations of his various works of incredible varying quality, which could be fun if we wanted to go through a few of those. But for right now, we've got uh, The Mist by Stephen King, which is a 1980 short story of his that was originally published in the Dark Powers series of anthology. Uh, It's pretty early in his career. His first novel he came out with was uh, Carrie in 1973, so he had a few under his belt by this point. But it's just kind of an example of just how fast this guy became an icon of, of uh, literature in the United States, particularly of horror, that he'd already had a movie adaptation done by the, even this early point in his career, where the original Carrie adaptation was done in 1976. So he was already pretty much a household name. But though this was really kind of just buried in an anthology of other people's short stories, this one really has had quite a bit of legs in the sense that it embodied some of the, of the what have now been quintessential tropes of Stephen King, which we'll go through here in a minute while also having a lot of influence on other writers. And for me in particular, one thing I enjoy is that its influence has had on video games, where some of my favorite series like Silent Hill and Half-Life drew direct inspiration from this series. And specifically cited just one of the main things that really helped them build their worlds is the sense of observant psychological horror that drives this story. But one of the things we like to go, in, go into before we unpack too much of the various tropes and themes is a general outline of the plot. So... Since most of the story is kind of told from the perspective of people watching the world unravel, I don't think it'll take us too long, but we always seem to be able to prove able to talk about the plot of a story for longer than it took to read it. So (laughs) where should we start? Uh, Well, usually plots help if we start at the beginning. Um, And we sort of have uh, a quintessential Northeast house and uh, a happy little family hanging out, basically. I said this is the most this is one of the most tropey Stephen King openings you possibly can have in the sense that it is happening in small town Portland, which is kind of every one of his stories. The main character is an author type. In this case, I believe he's kind of like a commercial artist, even though he had aspirations to be more of an actual artiste earlier in his career, like his dad. And he is we should a say Portland, dad. Maine. We should say Portland, Maine. Is it literally? Ha- I don't think it's literally happening Sorry, in Portland. You, that's what I'm saying. It's uh, Portland, it's Maine. In the area, not Portland, Oregon. It, well, sorry, right. it's happening yeah, yeah. in Maine. East Coast, not West Coast. Yeah, it's, ha- it's uh, happening right. in Maine. That's it's, it's, it's not literally happening in Portland because Portland's a distant radio station they try to get several times. But right, it's, happening it's a in small the- town nearby. Right. Just um, making sure folks didn't think this was Oregon. Yeah, no, pr- no problem there. Uh, not, not another factor, too, is that he is a da- the main character is a dad who has a single young son, which is another thing that happens in a hell of a lot of his works, particularly his, his, his early horror stories. And and a very definitely hot wife as uh, he seems to be very feel very important to point out at uh, numerous times. His neighbor's very aware of too. But story starts with a storm of where they are enjoying their small town 
main life before an unusually severe storm strikes their home and inflicts a hell of a lot of damage in the local community in a way that all the old timers talk about is unusual and just factors into all their various theories about doom and gloom. I think you'll agree that the level of foreboding the story starts with of the main character pondering the end of the universe based on a storm occurring is stark. It's a hell of a lot of talking about the unthraveling of the world and doom and gloom predictions before we ever even really get to what is going to be the actual end of the world story. And we also get some interesting sort of callbacks of the main character, like remembering things from his past that influence how he reacts to things currently. And mm -hmm. so sort of the uh, feeling of impending doom that he sort of references in, in his past, driving him to action and pulling his family away from the uh, living room window, I think it is, that, that eventually explodes. Um, and, and just how he sort of does his uh, mini doom prepping uh, for, for the incoming storm. Yeah, there's definitely almost an element, whether it's based on just past experience or even a sense of like prophecy bleeding into the narrative, there's a lot of moments of that, of characters seemingly predicting the ways that things will go down before they happen. Um, I so actually, Levi, actually, you yeah. recently had some experience in, in, a, uh, in a house that might be at least somewhat similar in, in you know, somewhat picturesque uh, Northeast towns. So how, how true did the, some of the descriptions ring for you? I'm not going to lie. It was incredibly creepy to, 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 to read some of this while you're at a place that could be very much out of uh, this, this novella. Um, it wasn't quite as big. It didn't have a basement or, or anything. But in terms of the sort of isolation, in terms of the you know, random trees that are, that are there and then the sort of proximity to the lake, um, it, was, it was pretty spot on. It was, it was interesting, put it that way. Um, and especially as someone who has not. Did you have any uh, thunderstorms? We did not. We had actually picturesque uh, weather. It, it got a little cloudy one day, um, which is not much to, to complain about. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm keen to hear more of you guys' description of Stephen King in general, because upon reflection, I don't think I've consumed a single piece of Stephen King. I'm, we can, that, that's, I feel like that, that takes a lot of effort. We can I, probably prove this wrong. Just the things that don't think, you, know, we, we, you wouldn't think are Stephen King. Um, no, no, you're right. You're I mean, right. I, I'm... Because he wrote um, Shawshank, right? He did. Yeah. It's a very different story, but he did write what Darabont used as a base for it. I will. I say, was going to say I'm surprised that you haven't seen Carrie. Um, I've I only watched Shawshank have you, have... Um, four months ago. <laughs> wow. Yeah, to... I'm I'm yeah. literally scanning through his his uh, bibliography and his filmography and realizing I I know the names of things like the the names mean stuff, but I've never consumed a piece mm -hmm. of media other than. Um, other than that, I mean, I've certainly seen like I mean, clips. Did... I get the concepts of Pit Cemetery, of uh, Carrie, The Shining. I've heard of the. I, I, I know the, the the beats, but I've I've never consumed them. So mm -hmm. I'm 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 keen. Have to you ever seen his more, more recent stuff? Like, uh, have you ever seen his more recent stuff? Like The Green Mile? No. We, there's a long list we can entertain you with, Levi. We will go through those at some point. It's got a magical black man. <laughs> we'll, we'll make a new that. series. John Coffee, JC, what up? Levi, we're going to make a new series about Levi watch, watches Stephen King. It's going to be fun. I'm definitely open to it. I just it hit me as I was reading it, and I, I realized that he was an author that had published quite a bit. Right? He was he's, he's been in pop culture for quite some time. Um, <laughs> that I never consumed a bit he's of. Done, he's done. Yeah, he's done over sixty novels at this point. It was even a period there where he was actually even doing it under a pen name, so people would stop bugging him so much. We'll call it uh, the Kingmaker, and uh, we'll we'll take Levi through his his catalog. Mm-hmm. 
one of the things that I really liked about the initial part of this story was I actually really got into the main character's head and enjoyed him. He has such a sardonic way of carrying himself throughout the early chapters. He quickly goes to shit as the situation does, but he views the world a lot of the way I do with just an inherent kind of sarcastic tolerance. And that's <laughs> a kind of fun perspective to go into the story with. It really helps paint him in the role of the everyman that we're going to experience then as we get going. Yeah. And so I actually listened to the uh, novella on, on uh, through an audiobook, and it definitely colored uh, my experience of this novella because it was uh, Bill Patton, who I know mostly from uh, the white coach from Remember the Titans. And so it was just like a very, yeah, exactly. And it was just like, uh, well, this is not who I would have expected them to get to read this, but it's interesting. As much as the mist ultimately becomes the enemy of the story and the various denizens that operate in it, uh, biggest tensions we honestly have are character tensions as the story goes, which is mm-hmm. classic horror trope. And we get one of our earliest ones in these intro chapters between our main character uh, and his neighbor, Norton, who is a high-powered New York attorney that seems to exist to butt heads and be the contrarian to our narrator. Though there are moments early in the story where you think it might be going a different route than that before it veers completely in the other direction before the end. Yeah, and I mean, sort of given that you know, I mean, people would know who King is and kind of where the story might go. Like, you definitely get sort of vibes that this neighbor is out to cause trouble. I mean, admittedly, you do know the title, but like, it's sort of unclear, you know, what the relationship is going to be with this, uh, with this neighbor. And he's difficult, to say the least. He's difficult, and they've got a history of being difficult together. But at least very briefly, as people can often do in a kind of disaster situation, they let bygones be bygones as they deal with collapsed trees all throughout their property. The neighbor is less of a dick than he could be with respect to a tree falling on our main character's boathouse. And they agree together that they're going to go into town to get necessary supplies at his wife's instructions. Yeah. And, and he takes his son with him. He takes his son with him, and it's from here we, we go to what is going to be the sole setting of pretty much all the story up until damn near the end. Um, and sort of the other thing that I wanted to touch on, which also felt like it was going to be a lot more important and also felt very of the time, um, is the downed power line, which mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you guys sort of remember that being like a PSA that was sort of on TV like all of the time. <laughs> Don't touch the live wires. Like the late 80s, early 90s, and then quickly just like disappeared because, you know, kind of like quicksand and, you know, sort of the other things of our childhood aren't actually problems that you encounter. That's a fun point to bring up early is that this story is very much set in a year. This story is, was written in 1980 and it is set late 70s, early 80s. And there's so much of the technology and some of the story is driven around that. Payphones are still present. Nobody has cell phones. Um, people talk about live wires all the time. It is very much set in an era, which made the adaptation interesting when they jumped it forward about 30 years to make it work in a more modern lens. Yeah. Um, did you guys recognize the uh, cars that were present? Not, re- not, not really, no. no. I mean, there's, there's his scout Jeep that he drives in. I did not, um, although I will say that of the 80s, the concept of drinking and driving being completely acceptable. Um, <laughs> well, the, the wife sure. frowns at it. <laughs> Browns, that's right. She's like, I oh, just geez. one more, just, just one, one more. more beer, and and him just almost like lecturing down. Oh, women, they frown about the idea of me having a be- me keeping a beer between my legs while I drive. Oh, those those worry words. Um, I mean, it is kind of tough when if you have to shift. So, what are you gonna do? Well, 
Although I will say, um, I mean, in the modern era, wouldn't the mist probably knock out cell phone reception? So yeah, you could easily build that in. Yeah. And and they do. Because that's the, that's the, you could, I mean, you can do any, you can just do whatever with the mist, right? Yes. Like, It's we never get any. We never get any resolution as to what this thing is. So if you wanted to, like, you wanted to knock it back to like 1840, you could, because the mist could just disrupt whatever technologies around then or whatever processes mm-hmm. humanity has then. You want to jump it up to 2020? Very easy. Boom. There's a mist. Yeah. Comes around, screws everybody up. Yeah, I mean, it knocked out radio. So like, it you know clearly it you know it could sort it, of go wherever has, and whenever you want to. It literally has sound suppression qualities. I mean, this thing does whatever it wants to. It's an otherworldly entity. It's practically a living organism that's entering our world. Yeah, Uh, and and, no rules for the mist. And the other thing that I thought was interesting is we do get to see the mist and sort of feel the foreboding of the mist before uh, they go into town. Yeah, that's that's delightfully Hitchcock there, where pretty much all the pieces that are going to be our story are revealed in the first chapter. We already hear the various characters who are going to be a problem are already presented. We already hear about Mrs. Carmody. We already meet Norton. We already meet a lot of people like that. And the mist is omnipresent and slowly approaching. Like the bomb you nose under the table is going to go off at some point. You just don't know how yet. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I, I kind of want to get your feel on this because we got this super early on, which is we know that he would, he'd never see his wife again. Like yeah. really, really early on in the story. It's an interesting touch because it already tells you our main character is going to survive, at least to the point he's able to write his account. It's because it frames that everything here is being told in retrospect. That the main, our narrator has knowledge that the character doesn't yet. Yeah. And that ma- it makes for an interesting lens to view the story through. Um, the reason I just love to mention the cell phone difference is because there were, there were a few writers that like to talk about how all, all these horror plots wouldn't have worked with cell phones. But all you see in modern horror movies is that one throwaway scene. Everyone looks at their cell phones and go, oh, I don't have reception. It hasn't changed the plot much. It's just led to that additional moment of explaining the otherworldly thing affects cell phones too. Or yeah. my battery is dead or whatever. Yeah. There's any number of ways you can work around it. But once they get to the grocery store, the plot pretty quickly spirals out of control of where everything starts off just like a normal hectic enough event at a small town of where everyone's stocking up in paranoia that the next wave of the storm is going to happen. Because the storm was a hell of a thing. Uh, so they got massive lines. But the main effect that has is it buys enough time that they stay in the store for the mist to now much more rapidly than it was seemingly doing earlier, descend over them and envelop the store and the surrounding environs. So did you find it weird that there wasn't a lot of talk about people stocking up on toilet paper? <laughs> I don't, there's only a very casual couple mentions of toilet paper, period. So yeah, that's very much background 1980s disaster rather than what we know them to be now. Do you guys oh, no, actually... I feel bad for the... Sorry, Jeff. I feel yeah. bad for the, um, the ladies checking everybody out at the grocery store because apparently their cash registers were on the fritz and they were having to do it by like just a calculator by hand which is also a scene that they take great pains to show in the movie adaptation it seems miserable to me you know, a line <laughs> of people and you're having to like hand calculate everything on like a just a basic calculator have uh, you guys been have you guys been to a restaurant or a store that has a sudden power outage while there's customers already there and they have to pull out those old slide roll uh, kind of calculators to do it mm-hmm. so what's really funny is i was at a restaurant uh, in San Diego when their uh, point of sale system went down and mm-hmm. they started going around asking people if they had cash. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was an impressive uh, look into how people operate uh, in, in the current day. I remember I was in a Chinese food restaurant and we lost power while they were there and so they couldn't scan our, our uh, credit cards. 
-hmm. So they had to go back into the back room and pull out the actual credit card machine, which prints the ticket that they, <laughs> they then send off. And they literally put it on the counter and had to blow the dust off it to make it work. That's how often they've had to do it. Um, but That's pretty funny. Um, so Levi, have you ever purchased milk and bread in preparation for a storm? Um, yes, on accident. <laughs> Explain. Um, what I'm, I'm, comes immediately to mind um, was a, 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 a situation that I encountered where I was in my mid-20s. Um, and um, at that point in time, I was, I was fairly regimented. I, I think, Terry, I was living with you at the time. Um, but I was fairly regimented in the sense that I had a, had a pattern, a schedule to, to, to my day and my week. Um, and I had off on Fridays because I worked on Sundays. Um, and so I would, you know, go throughout my week and then go do my shopping or anything else I needed to do on a Friday because that's my day off and people weren't around. And so it was easier to get that done. Um, it, on, on a given Friday, it was probably in August or September. Um, I was at the store, I, you know, gone to the store. Um, I'm going through, I got my list of the things I'm going to get for the week. Um, and I'm, I'm noticing, huh, like no bread. Weird. Um, keep going, grab beans, chicken, you know, whatever random stuff that I need, get to the milk. Huh. There's only a little bit of milk. I, weird. Well, well, anyway. Um, and I, I get up to check out and, and the lines are, are pretty long. Um, and then I get and, and, and eventually um, asked the, the cashier, I was like, this is, this is crazy. Why, why are you guys so busy? You don't have any, any bread, barely any milk. And then she's like, well, you know, there's a hurricane coming. Right. Um, and I, I realized that I just, I, I was so out of the loop of, of everything. It never crossed my mind. Levi, um, you're the worst prepper I know. Also, you don't get – there are no bad hurricanes in the middle of North Carolina. That's, that's, that's a ridiculous proposition. <laughs> a little bit of rain, um, yeah. I mean, Hurricane they, Hugo says hi. Yes, if I lived on a coast, I would care about such things. But, I mean, we're talking about you know, several hundred miles uh, inland. This is not a big deal. Yeah, I, I imagine you as the, like, one of the characters in this story that, that was like a neighbor that waved and then like went back in the house – woke up, you know, you know, did whatever they had to do, you know, maybe you have your like work at home that you have now, like comes out a week later and then there's just blood everywhere in the town. You're just like, what the hell? What is going on here? I would object Actually, to that, but in, in the sort of quarantine life that we, that, that I live definitely could happen. Like I could walk out. I was going to say, I feel, I feel like you go for walks more than you did before though. So you actually get to see the neighborhood. I'm curious to ask you guys, but when the mist descends, we get to see characters behave in all the various ways that characters could behave. We get really quite a spectrum of how people respond to the situation. Which category do you think you would fall in? If you're in this grocery store, you're an out-of-towner or local, whatever you want to be, and suddenly the mist descends upon you. Are you one of the ones that runs out right away and tries to get to your car? Are you one of the ones that bunkers down? Are you one of the ones that finds religion and threatens execution of children? What do you do? Well, I mean, I'll go first. I mean, I'm, I would be the guy drinking in the back, obviously. <laughs> You're Jim or Myron, gotcha. Pretty pretty obvious what I would have done. Um, Levi, what, how about you? Would you go fight the misc or would you be in the back drinking beer with me? Uh, I would definitely have a cold, cold one with you, man. Um, look, I, I wouldn't freak out. Um, I'd probably just casually go outside because I'm not a person who believes in, 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 in mysticism or, or, or magic or any, any of the supernatural. So I'd just be like... There's some fog. It's fine, guys. Um, I'd go out there and then probably dive very But no, so a question for you, and this is this moves the plot a little bit along. So at one point, like, uh, you guys can jump in and get more specific if you want to, but it, they're, they're a guy, and they, they have a whole thing in the back where there's some tentacles, and they 
end there up, are. They end up closing a garage door or something, and there's like a tentacle that like gets severed from whatever beast it's monster it's from. Anyway, they they come out front and they're like, "Hey, this is really serious. You know, there's like monsters or whatever." And people refuse to even go in the back to look at the tentacle. So my question to you, Levi, I know you would be like, "Well, there's no monsters," but you would like take the ten seconds to go in the back to check out the whatever they're complaining about right because that seemed to me the really preposterous that they were like i won't even i'm so indignant i won't even go in the back to look at what you're talking about most assuredly i want to check it out like if you if you tell me it seems me silly that, that they wouldn't just yeah. walk in the back yeah you said that there's a dead body back there i'd say well i mean i could check it out <laughs> i mean like why did, don't did you, you just drag the te- no? tentacle okay. with you i mean you just you know, maybe you don't want to touch it, I guess. You can, like, poke it with something, but... There's a lot of that going on. They they, they yeah. do a pretty wide berth around the tentacle. And a couple people do, like, the, the owner of the store, Bud Brown, goes and looks at it. But, yeah, the main one, Norton, is just stubbornly refusing. Partly because yeah. he knows it's real, but doesn't want anything to actually alter or challenge what he's already decided he's going to do. Yeah. Levi, I also there. imagine maybe both of us, but being, like... Oh, well, the generator's down. Like, we can take a look at that. Like, clearly, this is a, a problem that, that is a, should be at least readily solvable. You know, see if there are any parts that are stuck or whatever. Like, why not? To me, the interesting question is um, if one of us, you know, one of, one of our friend group, was that, was that sort of uh, storm ahead and explore the unknown, um, tells us there's a tentacle back there and we go and see it, do we actually believe them? That, that they're not just, just messing around with us, right? Let's imagine Doug. Doug's oh, like, 100% hey, we don't, because it would be Doug. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I still think we would have walked back. See, that the whole conversation about like, hey, come in the back, and the guy's like, you're not going to make a fool out of me and make me go back there. That seemed a little, like, forced. Like, yeah. I, so People I, would have walked into the back. I 100% agree with you now, but when we were in college, there was – definitely something like there are many times that we would not be able to convince somebody to go somewhere and do something that was perfectly reasonable. Like, Hey, like there's something at the end of the hall that I need your help with. And it, there would just be like a, no, you're going to play a stupid prank on me. I'm not going to go there. Right. There, there was an extended period of where I was afraid to walk around corners. Cause I would just assume Doug would be there with the goat ready to go. Right. Just- and, so, I mean, I mean, there's definitely that aspect that does feel a little bit more juvenile in this whole store. Uh... Particularly for Norton here, though, I really think it's... The, everyone in the story is breaking at different rates and in different ways. Everyone's going insane in their own pace and however they choose to do it. And his is just a stubborn adherence that it isn't real. It's all a trick. There's no point in ever looking into the evidence to the contrary because I know that's what's happening. And yeah, it's unreasonable, it's dumb, it's stubborn as hell, but it seems to be how his particular psychology is playing out. Um, I'm kind of with you though, Lee. I, f- I found it unrealistic, but at the same time, I don't know how I would behave in that situation exactly. And Stephen King seems to be trying to give us as many different examples of how people would behave in that moment. I know what you would have done. You'd have walked in the back. <laughs> I would have totally well, walked in the back. And you'd have been like, oh, okay, all right, well. Let's but, well, there's a tentacle there. Uh, so, hey, guys, uh, everybody in the store, uh, it looks like there's a tentacle back there. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> not sure what you guys want to do about it, but uh, it doesn't look like he was telling the truth. And also, just to note, there were whole people, all the people that ran outside started screaming, and one guy got pulled away by what looked like a giant crab. So, let's stay. So, nah, which, I, so who do you think is the most likely to 
start sacrificing children? Do you think that there's anybody that we know or we've, oh, I know the answer and he's running for office. So maybe we shouldn't mention his name, but uh, I think that's a little unfair. Of all the people that we know. I think through through sort of uh, uh, Darwinian competition, we bred out those folks uh, from our friend group. I don't know that there's anybody we, we know that who I think would have actually started the the children's sacrifice. Maybe not the children's fa- sacrifice, but but like preaching fire and brimstone. It, 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 yeah, it, was, it was fun when I was reading the story with Bridget is because she kept on saying throughout the entirety of the story about, you know what? Why don't they just kill Mrs. Carmody? Like they can kill her. I mean, there. we do get there. We do get there, but she was like, as she keeps saying this, I'm looking at this going, in this situation, you would have killed her at like chapter three, wouldn't you? And she shrugs and goes, well, she's a problem. I mean, what else are you going to do with those found knives? So, yeah, so let's back up. So the plot is basically this guy and his kid and his neighbor, they go to this grocery store, the mist descends, everybody gets stuck there. And then they're trying to figure out what is the mist? Can we go outside? What's going on? And this lady, what's her name, Spencer? Mrs. Carmody. She starts this fire and brimstone talk about, well, this is like devil come onto the earth to, right. to, to, you know, pay us back for all our sins and all this stuff. So when I was reading it, I was getting like serious Lord of the Vibes sort of, uh, Lord, of the, Lord of the Flies um, yeah. vibes. And I was wondering if she really thought that stuff or was this sort of a way to amass like a following for herself, like a way to build social power in that, that situation? I think it's, for her in particular, I think it's both because we heard about her before we got to see her do this. And this doesn't feel that far out of keeping with the stories we've heard about her, where she loves these kind of doom and gloom. She loves these kind of prophecies about the future. She's almost like the resident witch of this community. I was going to say. With a certain element of Christianity. So do, are, are we going with she has no otherworldly power? The predictions she makes prove accurate. It's just whether they're just reasonable deductions based on what you could predict from the events you've seen or whether they're kind of some element of supernatural knowledge. I mean, her, her call, like everyone, you're, you're going to die. There are things in the mist. Like it just felt a little overly prescient. I mean, what did, what did you think about when she calls out Amanda as being the whore of Babylon? What did you get into last night, my dear? Did she actually know that? Was she just casting aspersions and needed someone to assume that role? She could have saw those two slinking off together. I mean, exactly. Like, she's old, I old believe person that before who, uh, I believe that. Yeah, she's an old, old person who doesn't sleep, uh, who likes to gossip and, and, and stay abreast of town, town politics. Um, there's right. no. No, that's, that's perfectly my interpretation. But she exists at that point of ambiguity. That part of her power is on the uncertainty about, is she just saying the things she's always been saying? They're just now relevant. Or is there a certain element of prophecy that's actually in her character? My read She's just a nut who is in an unfortunate situation and people are looking for any degree of comfort or guidance that they can find. It's a perfect point for nuts to come to power. I did get a sense though, when she called out, what was her name? Amanda for hooking up with our narrator um, that Amanda was about to rock and sock and robot. Like there was a, there was about to be a fight situation there. And I think it was what somebody, they, something stops her. Was it the little boy? I don't know. Something stops her from like hauling off on this old lady for basically calling her in a whore in front of everybody. Well, I mean, it, it, there's a few different people at various moments that put her in her place. At one point, Amanda just throws a can of peas at her. That might have been that moment. That might have been what I'm thinking about, yeah. So <laughs> did everyone else feel like this sex scene was kind of a non sequitur? <laughs> it it no was sense. real stupid. It, you know what it reminds I had the feeling that King was writing this, and he was like, well, I really want this to um, – 
you know, I really want there to be a movie about this one day. So let me throw in a sex scene just so it like makes it more appealing because it, it, you're right. It's it, it, for nothing. It goes nowhere. It, it, no it, almost, it almost feels like it's gonna, it was trying to set up a certain degree of tension later when he rescues his wife. And now he's got that kind of divide of the secret between them, but they never pull that card because that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a reunion that ever occurs. Well, and also the, the story tells you that he doesn't see his wife again yeah. very early on. So the tension that he has for it, we know is never going to pay out. I mean, right. I, I can buy it enough that it's two characters in a horrible situation that are seeking a certain degree of comfort, but it's just entirely unnecessary. It doesn't really, doesn't really do much to change or alter the plot. The two of them were already close and we're already going to be friends, and he already has a cluster of people that he isn't banging all of them to establish their close relationship, so... What's no, it really that would at? be a very different movie, Spencer. No, that would be the original book version of It, which this is also a kind of a trope for Stephen King. He likes to insert some weird-ass sex scenes in some of his books. So uh, I'm going to be drinking in the back. Levi's going to have casually walked out into the mist and died 25 minutes into this story. Spencer, are you the guy in the back just hooking up with a rando? No, no, <laughs> no. I'm the guy that assumes this is some kind of natural disaster, like a local plant or something just voided all of its chemicals into the air. So like this kind of rolling mist happens. I'm assuming this is a chemical spill and I'm staying locked down until I know otherwise. Yeah. This is not, I, I wouldn't assume yeah. supernatural, but I wouldn't assume it's natural. Yeah. I'm definitely like stacking the mulch bags and shit like that and being, trying to like get other people to uh, help me with it. Cause I'm clearly not tall enough to put it up that high and just like, no one's helping them. Just like, guys, like there's mulch right here. Let's like, put it up there. Yeah. It does check out that you would be the person with like, let's make a plan. Let's do something mm-hmm. reasonable. Yeah. It's interesting. In the story is that there are definitely characters that do that. There are several characters like the local town priorman or whatever he's called the outer, the other outer towner like Dan Miller that all try to assert a level of control and get people in a direction. None of them end up good. And I almost wonder what the story is trying to say about people that try to, you know, take command and bring order. Because all of those people die before the story is done. There is that sort of trope of a begrudging leader mm-hmm. that is so, so common. Where, like, the people that go for power end up having uh, problematic ends. But the, the people that are just sort of like, well, you know, I guess if no one else is going to do what we need to do like i'll step up and you know figure something out do you do you think our main character falls within the scope of a begrudging leader um either throughout most of the story or, or at least at the end i would say no for most of the story most of the he story reminds is me he reminds me of the sheriff from the walking dead mm-hmm. <laughs> like in the person. sense that you well people he seems to be a natural leader but for reasons that as an audience we don't really know because he He's not doing, in my opinion, he's not doing anything that would make me think, oh, this is the guy who should lead everybody. But clearly, everybody keeps looking at him saying, hey, David, what do we do? Mm-hmm. And he just kind of, you know, he, he seems to have a bigger following than anybody else, except for toward the end when the little kooky lady, she seems to, to have right. a lot of people around her. Yeah, it, it almost feels like he served in Vietnam or something. And everybody knows yeah, that. Maybe not. Yeah, there's, yeah, like there's something else that, that they know that. It, it, it may be a certain degree be uh, family connections for him because his, his family seems to be like one of the old families in town that everybody's kind of known them for a while. They've got, you know, real feet in the earth kind of thing. And so there's that kind of history that everybody's turning to when it comes to him rather than necessarily him himself. Very good point, Spencer, because they do, the, the narrator does um, make a point of saying like, oh, well, this person's new to the town yeah, or this person just stays there for the summer or something. Right. Mm. And yeah, that's a good point. 
Now, there are other leaders that step in. There's, I think it's like Dan Miller is the, the out-of-towner that provides a certain degree of necessary oversight. And the main character says, well, he's the kind of person you'd like in the short term because he takes command, but you hate long term because he's a know-it-all son of a bitch. There's the town priorman that just as a result of his position takes a certain degree of command everybody turns to, but he doesn't seem to want it. And then there's like Dan Norton, who is kind of more representing an ideal that everybody are jumping behind rather than necessarily his own character, though he also is still the attorney who's gifted at speaking and they reference several times that he has that kind of command because of it. Like you guys said though, our main character, people keep turning to him, but he seems to want damn nothing to do with it throughout most of the story until the bitter end of when he's just getting out of the situation. Otherwise, throughout most of this, he's barely hanging by a thread, whereas even a lot of the characters around him come across as being either handling the situation better or being more competent in the situation. Like um, Ollie Weeks, the, uh, the, co the co-manager of the store, yeah. comes across as being <laughs> the most in command, despite the fact right. he spends most of the story blitzed through it, as he goes through it. Is, is he the one that was really blitzed or was he the one that, that David kept in his internal monologue saying that it was clear that Ollie was trying to get drunk, that but one. he wasn't capable, yeah. he wasn't quite he getting to where he wanted yeah. to get. He keeps sweating it out is what he keeps saying. It's also a very human moment, right? Like you're, you're trying to just get waxed and like for completely forget about what's going on here. But he, you know, first off, he's drinking beer and then he's having all these chores that David keeps making him do, uh, really disrupting the man's drinking. It, it's interesting too. I'm curious what you guys think about this. Did you guys pick up any code that, uh, like 1980s? I can't literally say a character is gay code associated with Ollie Weeks. Yeah. Because they say that he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a perennial bachelor. He lives alone. His only activity is to go out to clubs and bars at night. Uh, he's, quote unquote, afraid of girls. And when he won the lottery, he bought a massive sapphire pinky ring. There seems to be at least a little bit of code for that period that he's gay. It doesn't affect the character in any way, but I just never really kind of picked up on that when I first read it. Well, when you put it that way. Make a very compelling case. It utterly does yeah. not matter to the story. <laughs> um, so as we're sort of getting into like the mist coming in, was it a surprise to anybody else when there were things in the mist? No, no. I mean they, they make it pretty. I mean they make it clear pretty early on. There's something about the mist that you should not fuck with. I mean the first people that run out there after it, one of them gets yanked up into the sky, and the rest start screaming. Right. I mean, I guess before, like when it was still ominous back at the house, rather right. than like sort of once they get to the store and, and there's like clearly stuff in the mist, like you get that. But I guess there were so many other books and stories that have this mist or, or something like that, that sort of starts like closing in on an area and eliminating everything outside of that, that isn't uh, creatures with it. Yeah. When I first read this, I was not literally expecting creatures. I hadn't actually read a story about that, like where there's some kind of meshing of worlds of where you're almost just, your world is, is becoming one with an entirely different ecosystem and those creatures are just now part of yours. I never really read a story like that before and so I wasn't predicting that way of it playing out. It's not so much that they're boogeymen, it's not so much they're even really monsters. It's that this is a different world's ecosystem that is now being forced in us like a series of invasive species. That's oh, no. And BJ, I don't know if this gets at your, your question or not, but I hoped there was some sort of scientific explanation of the mist because it was like, they, they, they start yeah. talking about some sort of laboratory the, or something the like he was doing. <laughs> Project Arrowhead. I, thought, I was really hoping they'd give us like a tangible, like, okay, you know, th th there was some sort of nuclear accident or something that explains it. And then when there was just like tentacles, I was like, oh, of course, I'm reading Stephen King. I should have <laughs> known this was coming. But I, I, I do wish it 
like when I was reading it and I, the tentacles came out, I was like a little disappointed. I was like, oh, okay, I'm not going to get what I wanted out of the story. But this is a very fixed narrative of where in other kinds of horror stories I've read that are like this, there's, there's jump aways to somebody actually with knowledge, like a scientist that's in Arrowhead or a distant politician that's describing the situation more remotely from a different perspective. We never get that. We just get our main character suddenly encountering the tentacles from planet X and they just have to run with that. So I agree. It's kind of frustrating. We never get a greater explanation for what's really going on, but we get a hell of a lot of pondering from our characters about what may be going on. Yeah. How did you feel about the uh, description of the creatures in the mist as Lovecraftian horrors? Because I felt like that was just a little bit too like on point for you have to have read, you have to be aware of these other things and I'm going to evoke like something very clear right now and tell you exactly where this story is going but it it just felt very funny as a even by this point a little bit of a consummate author in horror referencing sort of like the that trope it was fun when that happened just because it violated one of the oldest horror rules of where in pretty much any horror story there is no other horror it's like how in a zombie movie they're very disinclined to ever say zombies as a word. It's like nobody in the story is aware of the various other horror tropes or horror novels or whatever else. So seeing him specifically name drop a genre of horror, one that pretty accurately describes what he's doing, it's almost jarring. It was just unexpected to see that. Now, well, it plays into my theory about this, this story, that? which is I think Stephen King was just fucking around when he wrote this. I mean, this seems like, like Stephen King Mad Libs. It's like, I need to write a story. Okay, mm-hmm. well, there's a mist with monsters in it. Like it's that simple. Like the plot is that simple for him and, uh, to like cook something up. I, I read a little about this, and it, basically that was almost his inspiration: is that he was in a grocery store in Maine and mist rolled in, and he thought to himself, "Well, wouldn't it be interesting if there were monsters in it?" And that yeah, the story went from there. It just doesn't like. I mean, it's it's fine. I didn't dislike it. It just doesn't seem like. Um, I just didn't get the impression this took Stephen King very long to write. So was the hot chick with green eyes just somebody else in the grocery store that he saw? And he's just like, <laughs> I really, oh, oh, there's a mist rolling in. I definitely need to put her in too. Cause and if only there were monsters nice here and then I could leverage that situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if there's a tension and uncertainty about whether our spouses are alive, that could just leave open a door. Well, a question for you guys about, we get to see a hell of a lot of various creatures out of the mist. Which one did you personally find most unsettling or terrifying? Uh, I mean, be- tentacles believe- are un, 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 very unnatural. So, I mean, <laughs> tentacles on, on, on dry land, I didn't, uh, it's very odd. But the spiders freaked me out. So Levi's voting for, uh, so is it tentacles or spiders you're going with? Because we never have a clear explanation that the tentacles are just themselves, if they're just their own living creature or whether they're actually attached to something. That's never really explained. That, that's not explained, so I'm going to go with the spiders because the tentacles are just the thing that exists in the world and don't have a body or a full form. No, the spiders got a hell of a body count before the story's over. And they are, yeah, dog-sized spiders with acid silk. Pretty terrifying. I think that was I one of the babies. Down. It was dog-sized. Uh, that's my memory as well. Okay. Yeah, spiders. there were some like really Did you massive say they're ones. I would say they are ice spiders as big as hounds, yes. <laughs> Uh, how about you, BJ? What do you find most terrifying or unsettling? Um, I think that the the described things, definitely the spiders with the acid web that basically just immediately lopped off your your limbs or like took off your head. Because that's so that's my memory of the different sizes of spiders. That it was like the smaller spider 
that went after him and like didn't immediately take off his foot but the bigger spiders just like would have a loop around your leg and like 10 seconds later it was gone um but the didn't even see the bigger spiders they were just firing acid webs from the darkness yeah but the unnamed horror that basically caused an earthquake and was like chittering around in some like massive scorpion beast sounding thing that Mm -hmm. was like in the mist and never shown that to me is more unsettling than something that i that is shown and dies how about you like i would say none of the creatures really were particular i mean they all seemed a little silly to me um but the the i think anytime you can put a human in spider web and have somebody like still alive or you know dying in spider web i think that's kind of that's a that's a freaky image but um i found anytime he was actually explaining the monsters in the mist anytime we got a description of those um it it wasn't as good for me like i i don't know i'm one of those horror people that when you when i see the monster i lose it a little bit so like Mm -hmm. that's why like when i when the tentacle came out i was like ah i didn't like it as much i would have rather it stayed mysterious so that, that moment near the end of when that uh, the babysitter is just wrapped up in slowly acid melting uh, a spider webbing when they're trying to go to the car was a rough moment for you, I guess. Yeah, I mean that's a freaky image, obviously. Definitely. Yeah, yeah I, I, of course. I just could have dealt with a um, little bit less of us seeing the monster. Right, and I'm, I'm with you guys there. And I find like the the spiders are 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 scary. There's the probably the creature I'd least want to encounter if anything else we see there, just because we see how utterly dangerous they are they've got probably the highest individual body count in the story uh for things i just find most unsettling for me it's um i don't even know what they call it i think i think it's like um that that giant six-legged creature they encounter at the end of the story when they're driving the one that leaves like jeep-sized holes in the ground as it goes past just because that was such a, such an effective description of just how much this is no longer our world that this is just a, if that kind of creature that may, I think the description was it would it was roughly comparable in size is between like a trout and a blue whale in terms of how just massive this thing is. Uh, it was just a very unsettling description of our world is no longer our own. This is a whole new thing we're a part of. That that was effectively unsettling to me in a way that spiders leaping on you or scorpion flies weren't were un- uncomfortable and it was scary in person, but it weren't as much reading it through a story. I was going to say, I think that the spiders would have been scarier if you hadn't gotten a description of the spider, if you just sort of gotten descriptions of the web and like something was producing it, like people, like somebody just lost a limb and it was clearly like something web-like came out or, you know, something that looks like silk or whatever, but mm-hmm. you never actually got the like tons of creepy legs and that description. Oh. In terms of big decisions our characters make in the story, two of the biggest ones are one, going to the pharmacy, uh, and two, leaving the supermarket in the end. I would have not done either of those if I was in their position. And I'm mm. curious, to, curious to see what you guys think of, of the rationale for why they did them and whether you would have done the same. Well, and, and to set the stage for that question a little bit, because I had, I had a similar question, but I think we can dovetail on, sure. um, which is... I didn't really understand. It didn't make a lot of sense to me how our main character, Dave Drayton, right? Mm-hmm. His, his nemesis, Brent, right? The, the neighbor. Mm-hmm. That guy's like, this is stupid. Forget it. We're leaving. Like, we, we're going to get out of here. And David's like, under no circumstance can you do that. That's a terrible idea. Well, then it was just like maybe 12 hours later. And David's like, you know, we can't stay here forever. We're going to have to go to the pharmacy. And he's like, 
I didn't understand why this guy went from one minute, like telling everybody you go out there, you die to, okay, well now all of a sudden I'm going to get a bunch of people behind me and we're going out there. I think as Levi might be about to tell you, that's where some guns were. <laughs> um, I actually behind you, Spencer, in the sense that I would not have gone to the pharmacy. That didn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, leaving. I mean, you got to leave and do sit around there forever. Um, try. Got to live. You have to leave at some point, right? So you leave now, you leave later. Who knows? It's the same thing. Um, but the pharmacy, I, 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 maybe it's my memory is being faulty, but I just don't remember there being a good rationale that was solid. Um, it seemed like, I mean, I agree. I read that point. Yeah. I read that part twice because it was pretty unclear to me why they were doing it. It seemed like their logic was we knew there were people in the pharmacy and we've heard nothing from them. So before we do anything big, we should check there and just see what's going on just so we can know what's out there and what effect it could have on us. It's almost like it was just like the initial scouting expedition to know whether doing a full-fledged exodus would be really dumb or not. Which, if that's the case, that's fine, but it seems like a massive unnecessary risk. It's like, I if you know like you've not... Like, sorry, Spencer, I, I, I just feel like they could have, to, to Levi's point, I think you could have stayed a lot longer than they stayed. Like, sure. I mean, you're in a supermarket. You got food, you got water. Like, I, like I, I would have found it realistic if after a week they said, you know what, we're going to have to do something but, here. But it's not really a shit or get off the pot situation 12 hours in. So, and that's where I sort of come back to if Miss, Miss Carmody has a little bit sort of more of those like witch-like powers and like whipping up a frenzy that's, that's clearly unnatural, like that could change the arithmetic there. Like that, that's when, you know, if those people really seem bloodthirsty and like they're going to start killing people and then it's more like, all right, we do need to get out of here as opposed to just go in the snack section and stop fucking bothering us. Uh, It it seems like Mrs. Carmody is one of their main motivating factors for wanting to get out of Dodge because by like 40% of the way in the story, several characters are already predicting that this is going to be Lord of the Flies by the time we're done, so long as she's leading a group. And more and more start to get behind that idea by the time we reach the end of the story. And as they're trying to leave at the end, they're directly grabbed for a human sacrifice to occur in at least two of them. But Ollie Weeks then shoots her in the, in the chest and the magic is almost immediately broken. Are they leaving now just out of a certain degree of guilt? It seems like, almost like, almost like compelling Ollie Weeks to a certain degree. He just wants to, he was so uncomfortable that he had to do that. He's just trying to get away from it. And from the rest of them, it may just be a certain degree of uncertainty as they don't know how the mob's going to behave from that moment. But I think I probably would have still waited to find out. I still have the gun and my car's still there. I get to control when this happens. But they don't make a similar call. I feel like, Spencer, you'd be the person if, if everybody was just like, all right, well, we need to do some human sacrifice. That's per- um, we're pretty sure at this point this is going to be uh, uh, what saves us. And, and you know, we're going to draw lots. And then, you know, it comes up five Spencers and you just be like, guys, this is, this is silly. But, like, if this is what you need to do. I believe in democracy and democracy is ruled. Um, well, not the expedite. We were going to get a Stannis situation for a second. I thought David was going to put poor little Billy up. So uh, that's really an interesting question. Did. I thought that's where they were going. That's an interesting question for uh, for David here in the story is that he says frequently, and particularly at the end of the story, his psychology is built around, I have no purpose but to protect Billy. Is that true? Or is that just kind of the mantra that's keeping him going? To what degree are those two even separate, I suppose? It's very interesting. You ask people who do not have kids. Um, I think that's a, a story <laughs> that... 
that people who have kids tell themselves. Um, I don't know whether it's true or not. It seemed to be a grounding technique for him that he was using sort of subconsciously as he was going. And because we, we were getting his thoughts and he would start to spin out of control and he, he would get grounded by going, okay, where's Billy? I have to make sure Billy's okay. I'm going to be okay. And he talks about every other character having a different kind of grounding mechanism to get through the story. Is that at least three of the characters spend the entire story either sloshed or attempting to be sloshed. Like Jim and Myron very successfully get drunk. Ollie is continually frustrated in that regard. Uh, some people, he says, basically descend into a certain degree of self-fiction. Like the, other, the otherwise perfectly reasonable and eminently capable uh, third grade teacher, the one that is just armed with bug spray as the story goes on, which I find hilarious, uh, convinces herself about midway through that this is all a dream, but it's a dream that she needs to still take command in. And that seems to work for her. And we get the uh, very airplane scene of her slapping the shit out of Amanda to get her to come to her senses. Yeah. I mean, she saves her there at the end because Amanda just kind of descends into a moment of hysteria when they're outside the scout, right? When they're trying to get into the car as the babysitter rapidly gets consumed by spiders. Yep. Well, how did y'all feel about the uh, end of the story? Because it's not, I, I don't think it meets any definition of a conclusive end. So, great question. I, I'm going to, to side with Terry about the sense that the, the, the over, overly described horror um, soured the middle part of the book. The beginning and ending were, were fantastic, right? So beginning, this ominous, uh, ominous doom that's rolling in, and the end of, eh, we're driving off and we'll see what's there. I like that. With, with a vague sense of hope with the name Hartford heard possibly over the radio, though even, even he's trying to convince himself he actually heard it. I also feel like the this is how much gas we have we're definitely going to have to stop first. And I don't know how that's going to go because anytime we step out of like an enclosed space, like shit hits the fan. So like we stopped at the Howard Johnson's, which is another like of a time and place. Sure. Um, I'm kind of curious what they did in the movie. If, is it like a red roof in or something? Um, well, yeah, that's that. That'll be a talking point. He, he has not seen it yet, so let's don't, don't tell him the thing. Yeah, yeah, that'll be. The, yeah, I'm not going to tell him, but that that'll be a talking point. I Spencer liked the ending. Um, I don't know. I appreciate it when any time an author lets us fill in the blank as to what the hell either happened, is happening, or is going to happen. Right? It's not completely spelled out for us. Like a reasonable interpretation to that ending could be that this is really the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or it could and, be that, you know, missed part two, you know, there's an army in Hartford and everything gets fixed, right? Like it's kind of all on the table when the when it ends. And I like that. Yeah. And I think it's also an interesting way to do it, which is he clearly, like he has the narrator writing down the story and leaving it at the Howard Johnson's. And so it's sort of even more up in the air because you know something has happened afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, Somebody found it, right? I really enjoy the end of the story in a way that I often don't expect because I, I sometimes get frustrated with just like end of the world stories where humanity is ultimately powerless to deal with it because it's a very common trend in Lovecraftian horror that I have mixed feelings about. Um, not as so much common in other kinds of horror. In other kinds of horror, it's stereotypical. The Calvary rides in and saves the day. But Lovecraftian is kind of a separate category. But I really did enjoy this one for a couple reasons. One, and this kind of amused me, I like how self-aware it is about it not being conclusive is that when our, our narrator is even writing out his account, he even, talks about, mm-hmm. yep. he, he even talks about how in movies you expect there to be a, a, a wrap-up, you expect there to be a closing count. And in some ways, just he points out and almost mocks the idea that that is just an entirely unreasonable hope for a situation like this. That'd be but, a very funny narration as the movie closed. 
Yeah, he, he literally says you're not going to get the meet, the ending you hope for here. Right. <laughs> and then it plays out that way. And I think that's very much, that's the ending that should happen for how the story has been told. This has always been a story told from the perspective of somebody that doesn't know what's going to happen and doesn't know what's happening. It's a very limited kind of frame narrative. They we are only seeing through the eyes of somebody that is caught in disaster and they only have that perspective. And so to have anything more conclusive would be almost like giving them knowledge or giving them control that they've never otherwise had in the story. But in spite of that, it's a very, I found, hopeful ending in a way the story had never had before, but feels still earned. It's a validation of the idea that one of the only things that's going to keep you going is just a sense of hope, even if it's a false one. And that there's a sense of that, that being able to have that kind of forward momentum, being able to have still a goal in spite of everything around you, is enough to almost just validate the whole journey and give him a sense of peace that he's never had before. So this, the fact that Star was able to get to that point, given his consistent descent into madness before then, and the continual uncertainty from his perspective about what he's doing this for, what he's still propelling for, what he's going to do to help and resolve this, it was an earned ending. I didn't see the story as being able to successfully pull off, and I appreciated that. Yeah, and I think that there are sort of other things leading up to that that in many ways rang more true in terms of like how somebody how people would feel in those situations like the um like in the store was like a little weird but as soon as he got out and um that tension in driving Mm -hmm. like in in crazy storms where like you can barely see ahead of you and like you can't really stop and and it just it drives a lot of tension and i would also presume but like i get this way when there's like a sheer drop to one side or maybe both. And like, I know that the car is going to deal with it fine and there are curves and whatever. And I'm just like, but I hate it. And like, it's just so much more taxing. And that description of like how taxing the drive is. And then like the relief that, that, that he gets getting to the Howard Johnson and like then figuring out what the plan is next, that just has a much more real feel than the story itself did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the tension headache that he described of just the force of holding onto the holding that wheel and then driving at 10 miles an hour against all impulse. Oh, I get that all the time when I'm going through like heavy traffic at rush hour. Highway, uh, what's the coastal highway in California? I th- Levi, I think you were driving on it at some point as well. And like, I just remember there being drops where I was just like, I want to look at the ocean, but like, I just can't right now. Highway one. Uh, it's fantastic drive, um, but no, this is a, a really it, it's a really good point here. Um, is that uh, it, it's the tension you have from driving in heavy rain, um, and and the relief that you have when that is over um, was so perfectly captured um, in that description, even though it's coming from a slightly different space, right? Um, but it's it, it's a it's a very visceral feeling, at least that I've had in my life. Yep, same. I think that's that's, that's how he wrote it. I'm sure his mind he was thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like one of the things that where this story does a really good job is when there are things that are impressively relatable. Like we've been in thunderstorms that are insane and are scary because of the forces involved. And he's good at evoking that and good at evoking like the terror of the damage even afterwards where you see incredibly large trees that were felled nearby and stuff like that. And it's interesting that like the stuff that isn't anywhere near as scary and is the horror is where it sort of falls apart. Mm-hmm. One question about a repeated theme we see um, several times in this book is uh, Dave, 
our main character's name is David Drayton, right? I keep forgetting that. Yep. Uh, is him coming to terms with lost dreams about where he thought he would be in his life or versus where he is now? Of uh, where he says several times about how he wanted to be an artist like his dad. He wanted to be uh, one that was well-regarded throughout actual artistic circles, to be able to put on shows for himself, to be able to make a living off selling works for their own sake. And that he failed in that regard. And one of the moments of him becoming an adult was coming to terms with the fact that he was going to be a commercial artist to make a living rather than artist for his own right. Um, that comes up a lot in the story. And I almost wonder, how much do you think that's Stephen King talking about himself? So almost a, a recurring thing for Stephen King is that his main characters are writers or, or um, artists. That's very common throughout all of his works. And having an author talk about coming to terms with being a commercial artist, it, it seemed an interesting addition to have the character keep on waxing about that uh, as the story goes on. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I hadn't really thought of it through that lens. And I don't have a lot to add because that's, it's good. I mean, I, I thought it was kind of a throwaway uh, as I was reading it. I, yeah. I did not, uh, I didn't tack on the idea that King might be projecting himself a little bit onto the narrator by making him an artist and then having him sort of constantly thinking about it. Because it, it is a little out of place sometimes when he's bringing those, when he's thinking about, you know, being an artist or failing at it or whatever. I remember thinking that was a little bit out of the place, out of place in the, in the it comes up like two or three times. It, it, it disturbing is that like Kane's first novel we actually got published. Carrie was the fourth novel he wrote. You couldn't get you couldn't get any deal with the other ones. And Carrie's viewed as like one of the quintessential commercial horror kind of experiences. It's a good it's a good novel and it's a very it's a successful movie. But I, just, yeah, I, wonder, yeah. I wonder how he how he felt himself that his original works were basically ignored and it was something that was like Carrie, which is much more popular fiction that got success. So. Maybe it's King talking for himself. Maybe it's just painting a more well-rounded character. But it struck me that an otherwise horror narrative that's focused around dealing with that, our character keeps on thinking every now and then about how he always wanted to be an artist and then never got to be able to be such. And yeah. they only really ever felt the loss of that and what he was giving up from that after the fact. I think there is an aspect of writing what you know. Um, I mean, sort of one of the jokes that Asimov tells about himself that he doesn't have any female characters until like he was in his, he was writing in his mid twenties because he basically struck out all the time and was afraid of like talking to women. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, once he finally breached that chasm, he, he started like adding them into his books. Not sure that was a particular benefit to him, but um, I see, I see King's writing, you know, the Northeast and sort of middle of nowhere and uh, being, uh, you know, write what you know. Mm -hmm. Here's another question. Levi, I want to start with you on this one because you already kind of answered it, but for you guys, what aspect of the story was the most successful and what aspect of the story was the least successful in your own experience of it? Terry? I, I thought he said Levi. I oh, did, but you know, start, start with whoever. Um, um, so I thought it was most successful in, in the sort of entry, um, sort of setup and, and, and description of the mist coming in, the, the isolation of being in a rural area, um, the sort of small town atmosphere that, that, that happens there, but also the sort of overlay of vacationers coming into an area, right? So there's this sort of class divide as well as isolation. Um, I thought that was an excellent um, way of describing it. Um, the was that helped by your being in a small town in New Hampshire as a <laughs> vacationer and, and being in an isolated area? Maybe. I mean, I, I'm not self-reflective enough to know the answer to that. Um, but the, I mean, the general concept of attention between uh, vacationers or, or, or people that are um, out of towners and a, and a smaller town, that's something that I've ex you know, seen in my, my life before that. Um, so I thought that was like a really interesting portrait into to a world. Um, outside of that, 
inning was good, middle not so much. That was the part, parts that I really really spoke to me. Terry? I really like the end. Um, like I mentioned before, I, I like any of those. I like an ending where, um, you know, you respect the reader a little bit to to be able to, you know, come to their, draw their own conclusion from what you're giving in, not like completely spell it out. Um, and I like that King did that. The part that didn't work for me as well, we've already covered, is the explanation of the monsters, the telling of the horror, seeing a little bit too much behind the curtain. I felt like that dragged. I like how Levi put it up. I hadn't thought of it that way, but really good start, really good ending. Not crazy about the middle. What you, Peter? So, I, I mean, I already waxed poetic a little bit about this, but just the non sequitur sex scene is just, I think it's unnecessary and it just, it pulls you out of anything that he's trying to do. And, and like, I get, you know, the monsters are going to be, can be a little bit campy and like, that's not great, but the, just the main character getting super horny and all of a sudden the character that the, the female uh, character that he's basically not said word one to, he drags off to the back of the store. They have sex and it's like, all right, well now we're going to hang out for the rest of the book is kind of like an, all right, well I've seen it done worse. Um, but it, it was, uh, I think, a real downfall of the story that, that I think was kind of unnecessary. Um, and uh, for me, I think the initial descriptions of the mist and how, like, it changed the view of the sun and, you know, the, the sort of the impending uh, horror of the mist was really where um, I got into that the book was horror and how like that was described and sort of like you could imagine the deadening of the sound, like everything just isn't quite right and is a little bit off. Mm -hmm. I I agree with a lot of y'all's points. Um, I really love the intro of the story was was almost magical. I really, really enjoyed like the first 20 pages of this. It really drew me in with just the thriller kind of build of not knowing what's where the shoe's going to drop of having the image on the horizon, but not knowing how it's going to play out was great the descriptions of the of the town itself and the characters were really realistic and i really love lines they talked about the ending it's first part of the of the begin the first part of the beginning extending through about the middle part of the story was i thought this was story was very effective where it wasn't trying to be a movie screenplay where it was trying to just have a sense of the kind of dis, post disaster or post um natural natural event of where there's that sudden feeling of you're doing nothing, there's nothing you can do, and what do you do with that? I think the story exploring that did pretty well with it, at least early on, of just that sense of helplessness and what people desperately try to do to not feel that way. And I thought that played out well. So much of the horror aspects, though, other than the the omnipresence of the mist, that feeling of tension and because of it, and what people do to themselves from fear of it, read to me like Stephen King was trying to get this option for a movie with the monsters themselves, particularly when the tentacles first show up, and how direct in your face they so often are, it seemed like those would be better on the screen than they work necessarily in this story. And they seem to take... Just don't work in the written form. They don't work in written form as well, because they don't have a sense of sound. It's the descriptions of the environment that the written story can do so well, and even the the descriptions you get from inside the characters' heads. And those are great. It's the monsters themselves that feel like they they work better in a different medium than in this story. And like you guys said, the ones we see less are often the more effective ones. The sounds you have in the distance, the rumbles, the shakes, the creatures you can only see part of or only see very briefly as they appear. Those work pretty well, which is part of just, just this general sense of dread that the story has upon you. 
It's the more we see them, which we particularly see in the middle part of the story, that it becomes more of a monster story in a way I didn't find as interesting. I found this much more interesting as a disaster story than as a monster story. Yep, I agree with you, Spencer. Um, I'm going to say this took King no longer than five days to write. He may have had a deadline, even though it was part of another anthology. So <laughs> that's my that's my 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 takeaway on this is that there's there's good parts to it, there's bad parts to it, but ultimately, I think it's something he slapped together pretty quickly. If I had to bet, and it's a credit to it's a, it's an example of Stephen King being a very different different kind of writer than, like, say, George R. R. Martin. Is that Stephen <laughs> King can totally write a story in five days and have it be a damn good story? That's the kind of writer that he is. It's just a free oh, flowing sure. bit of thought. Yeah, sure, but. It can sometimes come across as a little bit simple because of that. I have a question for you guys. Um, have something... you sure ha, have you either driven, interacted, walked around in a really, really heavy fog? Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. scary. Um, I'm, I, I, I ran I'm, off the road one time. That's very apropos of what I was sort of my experience there is that I, I recall, and I don't know, Terry, if you, if you recall it, but um, there was a time when we were in high school um, when there was a very heavy fog. Um, and I was was driving to to high school, and I'm going off to the main sort of drag to 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 go towards the high school, um, and I can't see more than like 30 feet in either direction. Um, at some point, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and my stupid little 16 or 17 year old brain was just like, I don't know, now's as good a time as any. Let's just pull out and see where this goes. Um, <laughs> which, as an adult, is like a super irresponsible thing to do. But uh, it's, it's so perfect, 16 year old. <laughs> I've got two fog stories. One is there was a really bad fog, and I tried to drive through it, and I just, at about five miles an hour, drove straight into a ditch. And it was like one of the, it, like, if you, it just made me laugh thinking about it. Cause like, it was like very old person, just juggle on five <laughs> miles an hour, boom, fall into the ditch. And then the other one was, um, I was, I was in high school and I got out to go home and there was a mist. And I apparently at one point drove through the mist, but my, uh, my windshield was still fogged and I still thought I was in it. Uh, I still thought I was in the fog, but I wasn't, it was just, I just had a fogged up windshield. Um, so it took me a, eh, a good mile or two before I finally stuck my hand outside of the car and wiped down the front of it and figured out all I needed to do was turn my windshield wipers on. I don't, know about, what it's worth. I don't know about you guys, but I've always found driving in fog more intimidating than driving in a storm. <laughs> I've been more inclined to like pull over during fog than I have been during like a bad storm of where it's almost like it's just, if it's a bad storm, there's, there's, there, there's sound of thunder. There's water hitting, there's water hitting the front of your, of your, of your windscreen. There's the sound of your wipers. It's almost just like it's an experience you can divorce yourself from. If you're driving in fog, it's fucking quiet. It's just you and the car. And I've always just found that a little bit more unsettling. Cause I just can't, it's not, it's no longer something I can overcome. It's just something I got to experience now. So most you times just have less like, reps. Yeah. You, you have more reps driving in rain than in a fog. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, but, especially now that he's been in Florida and you do it like once a week. All the damn, damn time. But like you were saying, Lee, in terms of like the not being, not being able to see in front of you driving into a ditch. Uh, I've nearly had that before where I've been driving in heavy fog. And the if I could have seen it, I would have seen there was a bend in the road. But you just can't tell unless it's more than like 10 feet, if it's more than 10 feet in front of you. And so that's happened to me a couple of times that I just pulled over. I, I, it, it rattled me enough that I just had to stop driving as a result of it. Spencer, do you use your fog lights? Mm, no, not typically. 
Spencer, you describe yourself as being rattled uh, by by something when you're driving. Is a very old person way of describing something. You, I, you, I, I have I, driven. Are you, you saying that we should take away his driver's license, Levi? Because that 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 feels like where you're going with this. Grandpa's not safe anymore, guys. <laughs> You guys have gone on long drives where I've been driving. You know how tense I get when I'm just driving normally. <laughs> I think only one of us, and and I think you were oh. way more tense when Levi was driving than when. I've driven all of you before at different moments. That's true. Well, here's just a kind of like a, a rapid question. I'm curious of your thoughts. If you had to assign this story to a genre, other like it's a horror, but what category of horror would you put it in? Is it is it the Lovecraftian horror that he references, or would you put it somewhere else? Yeah, probably. I mean, kind of, but also Stephen King horror, I feel like, is... The genre unto itself. Kind of. So, I mean, yeah, there, there, there are Lovecraftian elements, but it's kind of like a... It, it's hard to not say this, this reads as a Stephen King horror. Yeah. So, as a matter of fact, the, some, the, the Stephen King... I, the Stephen King stories that I like the most are the ones that I feel like don't fall into what BJ just described. Like, I feel like Carrie doesn't fall into that. But I feel like the mist really does. Harry's practically a coming-of-age story, just masked in a horror setting. But Levi, you're going to say something. Outside of the crappy um, creatures that are there, I would describe this, and I don't know if this is a terminology that exists in, inside of people who actually think about it, um, like atmospheric horror. Um, mm-hmm. And the way I'm describing that is, is, is I'm thinking of, of a sort of book series that I stumbled on a few years ago, but um, the Southern Reach trilogy. So um, Sure, yeah. Jeff Vandermeer, uh, Annihilation, which was turned into a movie, and and there there are a couple of um, um, sequels to that. Um, but I really love that book because of just vivid description of the environment. Um, and I think this again, excluding the the weird um, monsters, I mean the world is is the horror thing, right? The mm-hmm. atmosphere, the the environment, that's the thing that that is horrifying, um, and that's how I describe it. It's uh, fun too as people try to unpack this now in retrospect, is because when you guys say that you know there's a Stephen King genre of horror, it's gotten to the point now that his stories actually cross over. Like, have, have you guys ever read his Dark Tower series? It's weird, but it's worth a read. Uh, but it, a lot of the things that are now referenced that are in the mist are very clearly elements of how the universe of horror works in Dark Tower. So it's almost like a Marvel movie series now where they're all kind of crossing over and drawing elements. He's been writing that long that. It's almost as if they're all part of the same universe in different ways, which whether that's successful or not is to be debated. Honestly, when I was reading, I was reading various um, scholarly uh, accounts of people analyzing the story. One of the most common things that people were doing, yeah, would, yeah. <laughs> one, one of those common things people were debating was that which era of Stephen King's drug use did this fall in? <laughs> there were a lot of people. I mean, Stephen King was famous for a hell of a lot of drug use for a lot of years. He openly admits a lot of his stories were written under a particular drug. Like he's openly said that it was written on a hell of a lot of cocaine. So people have endlessly debated which 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 drug was Stephen King taking when he was writing this story. But no one has any clear answers to that one. I mean, if he was on a deadline. A stimulant of sorts? Those uppers, man. They're the best. Mm. But anything else you all want to talk about for this story? We've pretty much covered it. And no, I'm good. I'm excited to talk about the movie with you guys. Yeah, j- just to know in advance, who here has actually seen the movie? I'm guessing Me. You know, Lee, Lee and I have, but BJ, Levi, you two haven't? Nope. This will be interesting. Levi's um, going to binge all of the Stephen King movies in the next week and a half, but there are this a will lot. be in one of them. <laughs> there are a lot, and some suck. So have fun with that, Levi. <laughs> Other ones like, say, yeah. 
Other ones like, say, Shawshank Redemption are among the best films ever made, though Frank Durban had fun with that script. But y'all, this was quite a bit of fun. Uh, BJ, for people that want to listen to uh, other material that we come out with, including Oh So Rarely on Mangum Reads, where can they go to find that? Um, yeah, you can find all of our content on uh, mangumtalks.com. We have a number of pods that um, have been a little bit less regular, especially considering the holidays that I vaguely observe um, that recently have mostly passed. And um, yeah, you can find us on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Podcasts, and pretty much ever, anywhere else. And I try and post this on our Facebook page, uh, Mangum Reads. And uh, we also have our podcast within a podcast potting around where we are almost uh, at the end of book three, uh, which is honest to God, a lot farther than I thought we'd get. So uh, yeah, be sure to catch all of our other stuff and uh, we'll probably be doing some Mangum watches as we delve into uh, some other movies, yeah. which I'm excited to have another stream. We'll see how much everybody enjoys doing a movie watch of The Mist. And if we all enjoy it, maybe we'll actually start a series of comparing books and their movies and see how that goes. But for right, y'all, right now, y'all, this was a pleasure, and looking forward to the next time we record.